If you would, please open your Bibles to John chapter 6. This is the fifth sign in our study of the signs within John. I'm going to begin by reading the first 15 verses which give us the narrative or give us the sign, but most of my comments will be on the discourse or the dialogue that Jesus has with those who are present at the sign. But let's begin by reading the first 15 verses. Would you please stand for the reading of God's Word? After this, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias. And a large crowd was following Him because they saw the signs that He was doing on the sick. Jesus went up on the mountain, and there He sat down with His disciples. Now the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was at hand. Lifting up His eyes then, and seeing that a large crowd was coming toward Him, Jesus said to Philip, Where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? He said this to test him, for he himself knew what he would do. And Philip answered him, Two hundred denarii would not buy enough bread for each of them to get a little. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, There is a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish. But what are they for so many? Jesus said, Have the people sit down. Now there was much grass in the place, so the men sat down, about five thousand in number. Jesus then took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to those who were seated. So also the fish, as much as they wanted. And when they had eaten their fill, he told his disciples, gather up the leftover fragments that nothing may be lost. So they gathered them up and filled twelve baskets with fragments from the five barley loaves left by those who had eaten. When the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, This is indeed the prophet who is to come into the world. Perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. So the title for my sermon this morning is How to Shrink Your Church in Five Easy Steps. But why would anybody want to shrink their church? As I go around to various places, what's, what do you think the first question other pastors ask me as a pastor? What's the size of your church? It seems like church growth is the goal. Why would you want to shrink your church? I don't know that uh, Jesus wanted to shrink His church, so to speak, but He doesn't seem real interested in rapid growth methods. He seems to have other interests in mind. Notice at the beginning of this story, There is a major crowd, a large crowd, verse 2, that has gathered around him. We see again in verse 5, a large crowd. This is repeated. They want you to see large crowd. 
at the end of the story, after Jesus has multiplied the loaves and the fish and fed 5,000, which is just the men, there could have been over 15,000 people that were gathered around him. The people see the sign, verse 14, and they said, this is indeed the prophet. So they come to a pretty good conclusion about who Jesus is. This is a reference to Deuteronomy 18, where we are told that there would come one after Moses, the prophet, which is another way of pointing to some of the messianic expectations that the Jews had during those days. Jesus even perceives in verse 15 that they were going to make him king. So they see some type of messianic indication in what Jesus is doing. There's this large crowd around him. But what does Jesus do? He withdrew from them. He withdrew from them. Why? Why would he do such a thing? When he's got a captive audience, why would he withdraw? I think it is this. I think we see this throughout John. Jesus wants people to follow him, but he isn't interested in followers who don't understand who he is, the Christ, the Son of God, and what it is that he came to do to give life in his name. And so, most of what follows, chapter 6 is 71 verses. We're going to cover a lot today. Most of what follows is a dialogue or even a discourse it's called the Bread of Life Discourse where Jesus is trying to explain who He is and what it is that He came to accomplish. What the sign of the feeding of the 5,000 signified. What it pointed to. But I want you to notice something here at the beginning of the sermon, which is found at the end of this passage. By the end of the chapter, all of this crowd is gone. Look at verse 60. Even some of his own disciples, people who are not the twelve, but people who were following him, eventually left. They say this in verse 60. This is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? It's not saying that it is hard to understand, I don't think. I think they're saying this is a hard saying to accept. Who can listen to all that Jesus has said in the previous 40, 45 verses? Jesus, um, in verse 61, says, he knew that they were grumbling. Remember the scene. They're in the wilderness. There's just been a feeding of 5,000. We've already seen a reference to a prophet like Moses. Now he uses other Exodus language of the people grumbling. Remember when Israel was in the wilderness and they grumbled. It was a sign of unbelief. He goes on in the next verse or the next part of verse 61, he said to them, do you take offense at this? That word offense literally means to cause one to stumble. So 
Huge crowd at the beginning. Jesus shrinks away from the people. Then He dialogues with them. But at the end of the dialogue, at the end of the discourse about who He is and what it is that He has come to do, people are offended by what He has to say. They can't accept what He has to say. They don't believe what it is that He has to say. Jesus has put together a fabulous church-shrinking strategy. So hopefully it leaves you wondering, what did He have to say that caused this great crowd to go away? Well, His strategy to shrink the church comes in five easy steps, as I said. Let's begin with the first one. Jesus tells them, your deepest need is not temporal or material. Jesus withdraws, as we just saw in verse 15, and then He crosses over the lake. He actually walks on water, which is another reference to the Exodus, by the way, of the people walking on dry land through the Red Sea. Jesus now walks over the sea and is an indication that there's something else related to the Exodus here. But eventually, the people catch up with Him. And Jesus says to them in verses 26 and 27, Truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking Me not because you saw the signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Do not labor for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on Him the Father, God the Father, has set His seal. So Jesus says to them, you were not seeking Me because you saw the signs, but because you had your fill. I would say that technically, they were following Him because they saw the signs. Remember, they believed that He was the prophet, even the king. So they saw something in what He did that caused them to follow Him, but they didn't understand what it meant for Him to be the prophet or the king. Remember, these people are very poor. Very poor. I mean, they've got barley loaves among them. This is what poor people ate. And part of the reason they were poor had to do with the political powers that be within their day. So they want somebody who is a king who can deal with their political oppression and provide for them their temporal and material needs. They see in Jesus somebody who may be able to do just that thing. But they didn't quite understand who it is that was among them, who Jesus was, and what it is that He came to accomplish. Jesus will say later to Pilate in chapter 18, when He's asked, are you the King of the Jews? He's like, well, yeah, but my kingdom's not of this world. I don't do it the way that you're expecting me to do this King thing. That's what he's getting at in his comments to the people. He is saying, you're seeking me because your belly was filled, 
But your temporary and your material needs are not your most important needs. You have deeper spiritual needs. What are they? You're dead. And your trespasses and in your sins, you need to be, as Jesus said to Nicodemus, you need to be made alive. You need to be given eternal life because you are dead. It's not that Jesus can't or won't deal with temporal and material needs. After all, He did just feed over 5,000 people who were very hungry and He saw their need and met it. But that feeding of the 5,000 was a sign that was meant to point to something beyond that. It's not that He can't or that He won't deal with temporary or material needs. It's simply that hunger, which He just dealt with in this miracle, sickness, which He dealt with last week in the passage that Dan covered, these are symptoms of a greater disease. Symptoms of a greater disease. As sin comes into the world, as death comes into the world, we live in a fallen world that is full of sickness, that is full of death and disease. But Jesus' primary purpose for coming was not to palliate or even to cure the symptoms in this disease-ridden world. He came to deal with with the cause. He came to deal with the disease itself. And that's what he's trying to get at in this passage. So let me ask you a question. What do you see as your greatest need? How would you know it? The people in this passage saw their great need as being provided for with food. Now, you may think, you know, we're not dirt poor like people in a society like that. But even the way the rich behave, or the upper middle class, or the middle or even the lower middle class, can maybe seem to indicate that their main needs actually are temporal and material because that's what they're going after. That's what's on their mind. That's what they're spending their time focused on. So what do you see is your greatest need? Jesus says it is not temporal. It is not material. Your main need is eternal life. Do you see that? And then even in our ministry, we need to approach people as though that is their main need as well. So how does Jesus shrink his church he begins by saying you think that's your need but let me tell you what your real need really is the second thing that he does is he tells them i am the only way to have eternal life i am the only way to have eternal life in verses 29 to 33 there's further dialogue with this group that i've skipped over but Suffice it to say, He convinces them that they need something more. He convinces them, as verse 33 says, that they need the bread that comes from heaven. So in verse 34, they ask Him to give them some of this bread. Similar to the woman 
at the well who said, give me some of that water that I'll never be thirsty. They say, give us some of this bread. Look at verse 35. This is where Jesus begins to explain it all to them. He says, I am the bread of life. I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. This is repeated. Look at verse 47. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. Verse 48, I am the bread of life. It's repeated again in verse 51. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. So, give us some of this bread. I am the bread. I am the bread. But notice, again, he's shrinking things down. This really offends the church leaders. Look at verse 41, which is right in the middle of all of this explanation of him being the bread of life. So the Jews grumbled. There's that word again, which means they don't believe about him because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. Friends, we live in a relativistic age. What is relativism? It basically says there is no objective truth. We live in an age of pluralism where people say there are many ways to God. In contrast to that, Jesus says in John 14, I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. Nobody comes to the Father except through me. Here, similarly, he says, I am the bread of life. There's no other way to have eternal life except through me. And in a relativistic and pluralistic age, exclusive claims, that's what this is, exclusive claims are offensive claims. They cause people to stumble. And so, what do many churches do? They leave out all of the exclusive stuff. They say Jesus is the way to life, but often neglect to say He is the only way. Or we'll do that in evangelism as well. But not Jesus. He says, I am the bread of life. No eternal life except through Me. Well, why is this so offensive to the Jewish leaders in verse 41? Well, it's partly this very subtle and yet intentional language that he uses. He says, I am. I am. Another reference to Exodus. Where Moses asked the Lord, who should I say? What's your name? And he says, I am. I am who I am. It's a claim to deity that Jesus is making here. I'm not only sent from God, I actually am God. You could see why that would be offensive. We saw that last week in chapter 5 as well. But why is it that it is essential that Jesus, who is God, is the only way to have eternal life? It's because He's the source of life. Look again at verse 51. 
He says, I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. Look at verse 57. As the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so whoever feeds on me also will live because of me. Do you see the connection? I am the living bread. And then he speaks of the living Father. Jesus, as he says elsewhere, he has life in himself because he is God and therefore able to give life. Only the eternal God can give eternal life. That's why he's the only way to have eternal life. Only the eternal God can give eternal life. You need bread. You need food to live, right? You need eternal food to have eternal life. And only Jesus, who is fully man, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, but who is also fully God, can provide that kind of life. So He's made an exclusive claim which is an offensive claim to show that He is the only way to have eternal life. But there's another reason why only Jesus can give eternal life. And that is because He gave up His life. So we've seen His church shrinking strategy. You tell Him, I know your deepest need better than you do. You tell Him, I'm the only way. Jesus is the only way. Third, He tells them, I only give life through my sacrificial death. Or maybe you could put it clearer. I give life only through my sacrificial death. Let's look at verse 51 one more time. There's progression here. So he says, I'm the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. This offends the Jews again. Look in verse 52. Then the Jews disputed among themselves, saying, How can this man give us flesh to eat? And he replies in verse 53, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink His blood, you have no life in you. Another exclusive claim. The only way to have eternal life is through eating His flesh and drinking His blood. Now, you can see why that may have sounded a little bit odd to the people who were sitting there listening to Him. And so what does it mean? Well, again, one more time on verse 51 just to notice the way that it is stated. That last sentence, and the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh for the life of the world. Later in chapter 10, Jesus says, I lay down my life for the sheep. This is substitutionary language. I will do something as a substitute for someone else. This is sacrificial language. This sign, the feeding of the 5,000, when did it take place? Verse 4 
seems very out of place in the flow of the narrative. We're told that it took place the Feast of the Jews, which is Passover. I think this is an important insertion to help us understand the significance of what's going on. What happened at the original Passover? Remember in Exodus, again, the tenth plague was where the angel of death would pass through all of Egypt and strike down the firstborn of everyone there, whether Egyptian or Israel, unless the blood of a Passover lamb was put over the doorposts. Then the angel of death would pass over that particular house and spare the firstborn who was there. So what did the people do? They slaughtered a Passover lamb. A substitutionary sacrifice, a substitutionary death so that the firstborn in that house would not have to die. Jesus is saying, I give my flesh, my bread, my life for the life, for the life of the world. In other words, He's saying, as John the Baptist said back in chapter 1, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He's the bread of life that gives life only through His sacrificial death. Friends, you and I are not facing a plague like in the book of Exodus. We are facing eternal judgment. Jesus spoke of it in our passage last week in chapter 5. He's able to raise the dead, but He's also able to judge. As the dead are raised, some will be raised to eternal life, some will be raised to eternal judgment. What is our greatest need? It's eternal life. Why? Because our greatest problem is eternal death, separation from God, God's wrath. But Jesus died in our place. And it is only through His sacrificial death that we can live. This is the message that Jesus proclaimed. Only through Me. And only through a bloody cross can you have eternal life. But how do we eat His flesh and drink His blood? I haven't tied that up yet, have I? Well, that leads us to Jesus' fourth offensive stumble block statement. And it is this. Everyone and only those who believe have life. Everyone and only those who believe have life. The Roman Catholic Church teaches that in the Lord's Supper, we actually eat the flesh of Jesus and drink the blood of Jesus. The bread, through a work of the priest, is transformed into the flesh of Christ. The wine, transformed into the blood of Christ. And they arrive at this view in part based off of you must eat the flesh. You must drink the blood in order to have eternal life. So coming to the Lord's Supper for the Roman Catholics 
eating the flesh, drinking the blood, it's necessary for eternal life. But friends, I don't want to be dismissive. And yet at the same time, I just think it's really hard through basic Bible study skills to come to that conclusion. And so I want to show you that eating and drinking basically means believing in this passage. And that's through simply looking at parallel lines. So with your Bible in your lap, I want you to notice two parallel lines in verse 54 and then verse 40. So let's start with verse 54. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life and I will raise him up on the last day. One way to do interpretation is to interpret the hard verses in light of the easy verses. So that's the hard one right there. Now let's look at the easy one in verse 40. Everyone who looks on the Son and believes in Him should have eternal life, and I will raise Him up on the same day. So everything in that those two verses are the same, except the first one says, believe. The next one says, eat and drink. Could it be that eating and drinking is believing? Let me show you another one. Verse 47. Truly, truly, I say to you, Whoever believes has eternal life. And then again, verse 51. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. You see? Believing, life. Eating, life. Eating and drinking, life and I will raise you up. Believing, life and I will raise you up. The flesh and the blood, these are signifiers of the sacrificial death of Jesus. And to eat them and to drink them is to believe that Jesus is the only way to have eternal life and only through His sacrificial death. Verse 53 makes this very clear. I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink of His blood, You have no life in you. So this is an exclusive claim. But notice in verse 54, there's also a universal claim. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life. And I will raise him up on the last day. So unless, an exclusive claim, whoever, a universal claim. Sounds a lot like John 3.16, doesn't it? God so loved the world that He gave His only Son. Just like He gave the bread from heaven. That whoever believes in Him should not perish, but have eternal life. I mean, John just keeps hitting the same notes chapter after chapter, verse after verse, so that we would come to see that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that if we believe in Him, whoever believes in Him, we would have life in His name. So do you see that your deepest need is eternal life? Do you see that Jesus is the only way? Then let me invite you this morning 
to believe that Jesus is the bread of life. For whoever believes will have life in his name. That's the invitation. I'm not going to qualify it. I'm not going to explain it away. And yet, we are left with a question. Why is it that while Jesus has not only given this sign and then now even explained this sign in some detail, that people still do not believe? Look at verse 36. Right after He says, I'm the bread of life, He says, but I said to you that you have seen me and yet do not believe. Same thing that we saw in verse 60. Many of his disciples heard it. So they've seen it, but they've also heard it. And they say, this is a hard saying. Who can listen? I mean, we can't accept this. They grumble, which means they don't believe. They take offense. They stumble. Why is it that while so many don't believe, there are some who do believe? Or why is it that some believe, but some don't believe? We're going to get some of this today briefly. We're going to get some more of it next week in chapter 9. But this is what I want to say. Here's the fifth thing that Jesus says. Everyone and only those the Father draws believe. Everyone and only those the Father draws believe. Jesus goes on to explain after verse 36. He says, you've seen and yet you don't believe. He says in verse 37, all the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. Something similar in verse 44. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws me and I will raise him up on the last day. Sam Storm says in these verses you see three impossibilities. It's an interesting way to put it. Three impossibilities. First, it's impossible to believe without the Father drawing. Verse 44. No one can come to me unless the Father draws. But also the inverse of that is also true, that it's impossible for those the Father draws not to believe. Everyone who the Father draws will believe. That's what's being said in verse 37. Now while almost all Christians would hold that nobody comes to saving faith in Jesus apart from God's intervening grace, his initiative in salvation, some would say that while God's initiative, God's intervening grace is necessary, not all will respond to His intervening grace and His initiative. Those who hold this view think that God's initiative is like God throwing a life preserver to those who are drowning. God takes the initiative. But the person who is drowning, they do not have to grab on to that life preserver. It is their choice. Others, represented by Sam Storm's view that it's impossible for those the Father draws to not believe, would say, we're not drowning. We're dead in the water. 
So the Father has to dive into the water, drag us out of the water, give us mouth-to-mouth resuscitation, give us new life before we can come to believe. I think that that's what the book of John teaches. We see Jesus saying something like this in verse 63. It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is of no use at all. Or think of what Paul says in Ephesians 2.8, For it is by grace that you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. What's this? The faith is not your own doing, but it is a gift of God not a result of works, so that no one may boast. When the Spirit gives life, people will come. Everyone the Father gives to the Son will come to Jesus. But not against their will. But because they've been given a new heart with a new will that wants to cling to Christ by faith. So, two impossibilities. Impossible to believe without the Father drawing. Impossible for those the Father draws to not believe. But third, and most amazing in my mind, is it's impossible for a person who comes to Christ to be cast out. Verse 37. Whoever comes to Me, I will never cast out. Verse 44. No one comes unless the Father draws them and I will raise Him up on the last day. This is a powerful truth. We call it eternal security. You can't lose your salvation. But the point in all of this is we have to believe the Gospel, but salvation is a work of God from beginning all the way to the end. What God starts in drawing, He completes And Jesus will raise us up on the last day. But He uses means. This is the backdrop. This is what's going on behind the scenes. The Father working. But He uses means. Verse 63. We see this. It's the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is of no use at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. It's through the Word that Christ speaks that we come to see and to believe. You know, it's very interesting to me. At the end of the feeding of the 5,000, what do the people say about Jesus? Say, surely this is the prophet. And they were right. He was the one Deuteronomy 18 predicted would come. He is the prophet. And he has proven it in all that he just said here. But while they say He's the prophet, they don't believe the words of the prophet. They've seen the sign. He's told them of the significance of the sign. And yet they don't believe the word that He has spoken. So in verse 66, we're told, after this, many even of His disciples turned back and no longer walked with them. But Jesus said to the twelve, verse 67, Do you want to go away as well? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, 
to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And we have believed and have come to know that You are the Holy One of God. You have the words. It's not just what we've seen in the signs, but we've heard the words that give the significance of the signs. That You are the Christ, the Son of God. That You are the bread of life. That the only way to have eternal life is through You and through Your sacrificial death. Where else would we turn? We turn to You. We believe in You. Friends, Jesus is not against large churches. He's not against church growth. We want to see church growth. We want to see people coming to believe the Gospel and grow in the Gospel of Jesus Christ. But, Jesus wants church growth that is real growth. Church growth that is comprised of true believers who understand their deepest need and understand that only Jesus can meet that need. So let me ask you, are you able to accept this word, these words, that Jesus is the only way and that He has made a way through His work on the cross? Are they too hard for you? If you think they're too hard, can I just make one appeal to you? Where else will you go? He and He alone has the words of eternal life. And if you have believed those words, you are called to share this good news. And let me just say, don't minimize it. Talk of all of the abundance that is found in Jesus Christ. But don't water down the Gospel just to make it more palatable to people Tell the truth. The whole truth. And nothing but the truth. And God, He will save. He will save. He will draw people to Himself. We don't have to package the message. Take the message that has been given to us, proclaim it with boldness, and trust that God will do the work to His own glory. Would you pray with me? Father, these are hard words. Hard words for people who want things their own way. But these are powerful words. Words that are powerful. The very power of God for those who are being saved. And so I pray You would use these words to draw many to faith in Jesus Christ, even many who are here today. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.